This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at reactroundup.com slash kendoui. Hey everybody and welcome to another React Roundup. This week on our panel we have Kent C. Dodds. Hello. Nader Dabit. Hello from Mississippi. Corey House. Hi there from Kansas City. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A uh, quick encouragement to check out React Dev Summit. Um, I think it's going to come out, or it's going to be live the week after this episode comes out. So you've got one week. Go get your tickets. They're free if you want to attend live. You can pay to get access to the recordings and the other stuff that we're offering. Um, but yeah, go check it out. Um, this week, we are going to be talking about uh, React component something something that Kent said he wanted to talk about. So uh, Kent, do you want to give us an introduction? Yeah, sure. Um, so for the last couple months, I've been on this um, component patterns kick. Um, just like, uh, I, I, so I built this library called Downshift that's uh, autocomplete uh, solution. It was intended to, to solve uh, um, some issues we were having with existing autocomplete solutions at PayPal. And in building that, I stumbled upon some patterns um, that uh, I'd never seen before or um, patterns that I'd I'd learned from um, smart folks like Ryan Florence, and uh, I kind of integrated some of those into this library downshift. And yeah, just got super excited about um, the flexibility that some of these um, patterns can provide us for our uh, components that are either highly reusable or even um, those that, uh, that are only used once, but provide a, a better mechanism for sharing code or for abstracting uh, complex code. And so, yeah, that's that's why I wanted to talk about these advanced patterns. I, I also there there's a um, ulter, ulterior motive, I guess, because I'm also um, I have a course on Egghead about uh, this topic, as well as uh, some a workshop that's coming up uh, on Frontend Masters and Workshop.me um, that people can learn more about those things. And I can give you some links to put in the show notes. But uh, yeah, so anyway, that's what we're talking about today, I guess. <laughs> So I'm going to ask my question then, because a lot of this, I, you know, I, I looked through some of the blog posts and stuff, and I was like, okay, th this stuff makes sense. So what what makes it advanced? <laughs> oh, good. I'm so glad that uh, that was your impression. So the only reason that um, I would say it's that these uh, patterns are advanced is um, just because the it, it's not something that you would stumble upon naturally as um, a React developer just getting into things, um, and it's. I think um, it uh, it requires a certain level of understanding of um, what React is doing under the hood, what what things uh, React can provide you, uh, some React utilities. Um, some of them uh, require some utilities from React, and uh, and also it kind of requires taking a step back and really understanding what um, um, that React is really just JavaScript. I'm thinking about the render prompt pattern. It's actually remarkably a sim like a really really simple pattern um but it um yeah it's it kind of t like when you see it for the first time you're kind of taken aback and like what what is this thing that i'm looking at um so yeah i i would say that uh, they're really 
conceptually, uh, several of them are, are quite simple. Some of them are a little bit more complicated, um, but they're advanced because it's, uh, it requires you to think about the way you're building your components a little bit differently. Gotcha. So you mentioned Downshift when we first started. Uh, does Downshift have a React Native version? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, it does actually. So um, I'll, I'll talk about probably the the biggest pattern in Downshift. There there are like uh, four or five um, patterns that are all encapsulated inside Downshift, and and the, probably the most influential one is uh, the render prop pattern. And so the render prop pattern is a, a mechanism by which you can share logic. Um, and uh, and then leave the responsibility for the view or what people um, like what the user sees. Um, leave that responsibility to the user of your component. Um, and so basically, the idea is you have your React component has your component lifecycle hooks, it has your um, like your constructor, all all of that stuff. And then you take that render function and you delegate the responsibility of the render function to the user of the component. And so instead of putting your JSX in there, all that you do is you say this.props.render, and that is a function that you call, and you give it some state, and maybe some um, other functions that are like are used to update state. And um, with, with that, you actually provide a huge amount of power um, for uh, highly reusable components. Uh, so um, because Downshift doesn't care about what you render, it just calls this this render function, um, which incidentally it could also be the children prop. You could do this children and invoke that. Um, that's called the function as a child or function as children. Um, so I don't really care what you call the prop. Uh, it could be render, could be children, could be Bob. I, I don't really care. But um, at at the end of the day, uh, because Downshift doesn't really care what you're rendering, um, it's actually pretty trivial to uh, support React Native as well because it's not rendering any divs, it's not rendering anything at all. It just calls your render prop. And um, the, the, when we we just barely added support, and it's actually still kind of unofficial. Well, yeah, we're, we're still like documenting it. So it's not technically official yet, but uh, it has been shipped to the App Store um, in, in an app. So. Um, there were just a handful of things that we needed to do to support uh, React Native. And um, I, most of that's thanks to the render prop pattern. So actually, um, as I was saying that, I thought of something else I wanted to mention about some of these patterns. Um, I think that when we're talking about uh, code abstraction or code reuse, um, like a lot of libraries are going to abstract both the, um, the logic behind the component and the way that it looks. Um, or at least the the structure, and then they'll provide for you like these are the classes that we're applying to these divs and spans and whatnot, and you just provide your CSS. Um, or maybe they'll accept uh, some style um, uh, props, and then they'll apply those different style props to the different elements that they render. Uh, and so, I, I think the the logic part is normally the part that's pretty generic. Um, about lots of these components, unless you're building a, a UI library or something, then then um, it's the view part. But for lots of our components, it's the logic part. And so by um, by giving the user of the component complete control over what is actually being rendered, um, your component can be much more useful generically for uh, for a lot more people. And that's one of the things that makes Downshift so powerful is because like most of the time when you're trying to select an autocomplete um, a component um, or like a drop down component or something like that, um, 
like you want it to behave in the way that normal dropdown components behave. Like it, it's not too complicated. Most of the time, the use cases there are are similar, but you want it to look like the rest of your app. That's like almost like 90% of the time, unless you're doing like a bootstrap thing and you're just using a bunch of bootstrap components, you want it to be styled like your app. And so because um, Downshift uses a render prop, all of that responsibility for what it looks like and what, what it renders is totally your responsibility. So you can use styled components, you can use Glamorous, you can use whatever you want to do to, to style these things because you're in charge of rendering it. Um, you can use like regular CSS. Um, in fact, uh, you could also use like regular HTML and CSS. I, I have like a, an example um, where I, I bundle the Preact library with Downshift and um, and give you just like this regular vanilla JavaScript solution. And it's still, because Preact is so small, it's still actually smaller than any other autocomplete library that I've been able to find on the internet, which is like, that's pretty crazy. It's also like... <laughs> the most um, accessible autocomplete uh, library that I've seen on, on the internet. Um, and, um, and that's not just me talking. Marcy Sutton helped a lot with the accessibility. And um, I had somebody um, mention to me that uh, like they're an accessibility researcher and this is the most accessible autocomplete library uh, that they've found. And, and lots of that comes with some of the other patterns that, uh, that we can talk about. But uh, just to get back to my main point, um, when, when you're building generic components in React, you're normally wanting to um, like make or abstract the way something looks or the way it behaves or both potentially. But if you can abstract the way that it, um, it behaves without abstracting away the way it looks, then your component can be uh, adapted to a lot, of, uh, a lot more um, uh, situations, a lot more applications because uh, it's just easier for them to style it the way that their application wants it to look, and and also even like what, like in the, in the case of downshift, you have a, a menu that opens. Well, if you want it to open to the side, or if you want it to open above, or um, you know whatever the case may be, um, because you're in charge of rendering, you also have um, like total responsibility over what order things are rendered as well. Um, and so, and downshift doesn't need to do a bunch of if statements or, or um, accept a whole bunch of different props to uh, support these different um, styles of where things are, are put because you're responsible for putting things in the right place anyway, or in the place that works for you. So yeah, render prop pattern, uh, probably my favorite pattern. Um, it's, it's just so, so powerful for uh, abstracting away really common logic and leaving the, the view responsibility for the users. So Kent, that's good stuff. Um, I agree, render prop is powerful. I'm curious, you guys have obviously uh, used it at PayPal um, for downshift. Uh, I find it interesting because you're, you're obviously a big fan of the pattern. I feel like the pattern is useful, but uh, honestly have used it very little uh, thus far in our own work at Cox Automotive um, on our reusable libraries. I'm just curious, uh, what are some other places that you've found this pattern to be useful specifically? Or are there other opportunities that you see right now when you look out at existing component libraries where you feel like there's an opportunity for them to refactor and put this to use? Uh, good question. So like with the render prop pattern, um, particularly, I think um, like some, some places that I've used it just in my like own code is if I need to make a... a Ajax request or something, um, 
it like it makes sense. You can just put that directly in your component. But if you're making the same AJAX request, or maybe it's configurable via props or something, uh, then you can create a, a component that uses the render prop pattern. It makes that um, it has all the life, component lifecycle hooks. And then all of your other components that use this thing can actually be really, really simple. They're just potentially even function components. They don't have any state. They don't care about um, lifecycle hooks at all. And so you can kind of abstract away the complexity outside of all of your components and use a render prop to uh, separate uh, from the uh, separate the logic from the view, which um, makes things easier to test. It makes them easier to um, to develop with. Uh, for like maybe some of your developers are are better at the logic piece than, and others are better at the view piece, and so um, having those clear separations has been pretty helpful for uh, for the apps that I've I've created. Um, Can we talk about that one for a second? Because I've seen people do that before, and for some reason that just feels off to me. And and maybe this is just my own preferences. And when I say that before, I'm referring to the idea of having a component that makes the Ajax call for you and then uses render props so you can slap whatever you want underneath it. I tend to prefer having all my API calls centralized in a usually a folder called API. So then you think about any application, or I should say any component that's going to need to make these calls, well, it should be accepting a function on props that allows me then to decouple the two. So then I can still test that component easily in isolation. I don't have to worry about a mocking framework or any of, of those pains. So to me, I, I still struggle with, I don't see the benefit of me using a React component to do that versus just using a, what I would call a POJO or just, you know, plain old JavaScript over here sitting in a folder. Do you see a benefit there or is it really just a stylistic preference? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. Um, so when it, I, I actually do exactly the same thing. I, I prefer to have my API calls and, and that kind of thing in a separate um, module as well. Um, but when you actually use that module, where are you using it? You're probably using it in a componented mount lifecycle hook. Um, and so that's the part that we're abstracting away so that the, the render, um, like the, the UI piece can just be over here. And, and the nice thing is you can abstract away um, like uh, caching logic based on props. You can abstract away a, a lot of um, useful bits of information. Uh, and another thing that I should probably mention is um, and there is a, a, like API calls is just one example. There are lots of different um, use cases for render props. And there's a repo on GitHub called um, Awesome React Render Props. Um, that's just a, a list of cool components in the open source community for uh, render props. And I'll, I'll make sure we get a link to that in the show notes. Because uh, yeah, that one's pretty um, it, yeah, I, I'm helping maintain that, and it's got a lot of really cool um, components in there. Stuff for uh, browser APIs, um, stuff for um, I, I think there's um, one for even like the device battery um, and stuff like that. So it's it's just a nice pattern to encapsulate some logic using React's lifecycle hooks, and then leaving you to be responsible for what happens in the view. Whoa, this list is awesome. This just made my day. Thanks, Ken. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so can you speak a bit? You mentioned how uh, Downshift is highly accessible. And I, I know, like probably most reusable components, they don't start off that way at all. And it really is hard work, especially something like this that deviates so much from native HTML uh, 
Can you speak to some of the things that you've done there to make it accessible? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I just really care about accessibility a lot. And so I, I was um, unwilling to release the library until it was at least as accessible as um, what I saw in jQuery's autocomplete, uh, jQuery UI. Um, but I, I, um, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants because I could look at jQuery, jQuery UI, I could look at um, React Select, I could look at React Autocomplete and see what those do with screen readers, what do those do with, um, with the uh, dev tools and accessibility. And I was able to take some of the things that I learned from those and um, just shove them all into downshift. Um, I, I also uh, checked out the accessibility guidelines for a component like this. Um, which uh, was surprisingly not like as difficult to read as um, as you might think. Uh, and then when I had like lots of that finished, um, I reached out to Marcy and I said, "Hey, Marcy, I'm trying to build this thing that I just really want to be super accessible for the community, and I know you care about this. Um, could you give it a, a look over?" And she gave us uh, like three or four um, uh, tips. So like, yeah, lots lots of really interesting things. There's um, um, like when when the user enters the field, that it needs to have the like a right label for that field. When the user like opens the menu, it needs to say how many items are available in the menu. As they're going through the items in the menu, it needs to say um, what item is currently highlighted. Um, all all kinds of things that need to happen. Um, and downshift encapsulates these all um, and provides the the necessary props for you. Uh, that you can apply to your input, that you can apply to your menu, um, so that the screen reader reads the right stuff. Okay, and you just quickly mentioned Marcy. I know who Marcy is, but for the the listeners, do you have Marcy's Twitter handle? I, I assume she's one of those that believes enough in accessibility that she's probably open to people pinging her on Twitter uh, with these sorts of questions from time to time. Yeah, yeah. So you'll find her on uh, on Twitter at is Marcy Sutton, S-U-T-T-O-N. Um, and uh, yeah, she's she's a super awesome person, um, very, very into accessibility. So I definitely recommend to follow there. Yep, totally agree. So one thing that I think about when we're talking about render props is how they reduce the amount of opinion that that component has. Uh, now, given, I, I guess they, they effectively, you could add a lot of opinion behind the scenes, but as far as the look and feel that comes out of it is exactly what you're giving people um, is, is more power to decide what markup they want to put there within render. So uh, I think one thing to point out here is anytime you're choosing render props, you're giving the consumer more power, um, but also giving them a little more responsibility there. So I think there's a trade-off that's worth mentioning here. And this is also where I think thus far, I've been hesitant in a lot of cases to use render props on uh, our component library in-house uh, just because we seem to have a, a fixation more on using React components as a way to standardize look and feel. So we'll have long conversations with our UX team to say, okay, this is exactly how we want it to operate and we've got the right props here to provide the necessary flexibility. Um, I'm curious, so, so would you agree that render props are probably more relevant for uh, a truly open source React component than necessarily something in-house that you're using to uh, provide standardization. That's such a good point, Corey. I'm so glad you brought that up because one of my favorite things about uh, patterns uh, and, and like when you know that you've 
landed on a good pattern is when you can re-implement the things you did before in the new pattern. Um, and then that new pattern gives you even more flexibility. So um, here's what I would say to that. Uh, you create your render prop and that's your base component, contains all the logic. And then you create another component that's your pre-styled um, component that uses the render prop component. And so if, um, uh, and I'm actually, I'm kind of surprised that nobody's um, actually published a component built on top of downshift. Um, at least I was surprised. I was expecting a lot of people to say, okay, here's downshift, but it looks like semantic UI or here's downshift and it you know, behaves in this way. Um, but I, I realized that the reason that nobody's done that is because um, the use cases are so um, like different between uh, different usages of a component like downshift that like there would be no reason really to uh, to do something like that. Um, but in, in any case, um, the the nice thing about the render prop pattern is you can implement your component using a render prop, and then you can implement another one that uses uh, that render prop, and then um, like for like eighty percent of the use cases, they're just going to use the pre-styled one that um, accepts props with like items or whatever. Um, but then for people where that doesn't quite work for them, they can drop in and, and use the base component that uses a render prop, and and uh, uh, so you get kind of the best of both worlds there. So it's funny that we're talking about some of this stuff with downshift today because last night the uh, talk from, or the, I guess this morning, the talk from Dan Abramov, he went over a couple of new things that are like being put, I guess, into the new React APIs or at least being discussed. And one of the demos, he actually was using a form input that kind of, I guess, has similar functionality as, as if someone was going to be working with downshift. And basically, the idea was kind of like, how, how, how are you going to prioritize the rendering for certain components, other, other components? Like, what are the more prioritized components that you want to render? So, so for instance, his demo was like a form input, and then the form input maybe affected things that were going on in the application. I'm wondering, like, if you kind of saw that and like your thoughts on that and how they would be impl implemented in the future, like along the lines of some of the stuff that you're talking about. Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I did see it um, early, early this morning here in the US. Um, and uh, I, I'm super impressed by it. I, I don't think that there will be much work needed in Downshift, especially because it um, uh, Downshift itself doesn't care about the UI. Um, and so um, I'm my guess is that React will just kind of have a default priority for certain things like form inputs will probably have the highest priority things that are user interactive. Um, but if uh, and I don't know what the API is to say, hey, React, this actually has should have a higher priority than it would normally. Um, but if that were the case, um, it, like if there was some sort of like, you know, you you render this component with uh, some sort of like some prop that indicates its priority or something like that. Um, then downshift actually has an, another pattern that we can maybe, this is a segue into um, the prop collections and prop getters um, that kind of go along with uh, with render props. Uh, so we can move into that a little bit. But like I said, I'm not exactly sure what the, um, like what API will be like for specifying the priority. Um, but I think that React should probably uh, be treating things um, in an expected way. That that was actually one of the exciting things about his demo was that he didn't actually change any source code. He just like changed his version of React. So, do you have any kind of suggestions for people that are building form inputs that kind of 
affect the rest of the application about how to handle the form input so you're not having any like large delays? Would you use something like a debounce or something like that right now? Or what is your normal method? Or did, I guess, does it just depend on the situation? Yeah, it kind of depends. Um, if you do have something that um, that takes a long time to render as you enter keystrokes, it's going to render some you know, a big graph or something like that, um, then I would probably debounce for now and uh, and then hope in the future that React just gets super fast. But you, you definitely would want to test um, how things work, even even in the future when React is like in um, using the async mode and all everything's super fast. Um, I would still want to make sure to try the experience out on a mobile device before I remove something like a debounce. Um, or, or at least like test the debounce versus the async um, React because, um, yeah, like it, it's very, very case by case basis, I think. So I guess we talked about render props. I know this is going to be a, a show about other you know methods of kind of creating your components. Um, another method I know is using basically higher order components. And it was like, you know, people were writing blog posts about how our components and it was super popular. And now it seems to be like render props. Um, like, does it really matter? And I guess it's more about a question of like, you know, your personal opinion, but I'd also like to hear, you know, everyone else's opinion and kind of like real world use cases. I know for me, like how order components are great, but if I use more than one or two, they start getting a little complex and kind of hard to read. And I've noticed that render props to me, like are just a lot more readable and a lot more easier to use, especially going back into old code and kind of like being able to just jump in and kind of be able to get up to speed on what's going on. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with readability. I, I think like um, I, I jumped into some code that was using um, uh, Recomposer, uh, that uh, just this library full of a bunch of higher order components that are, that are pretty neat. Uh, but if you use more than two or three of those, I get lost really quick. And maybe it's just my familiarity, but I, I think that's an indication that maybe um, it's uh, um, like a, a challenge for people and, and um, something to reconsider. So that, that's one thing. So the thing with higher order components is um, where the composition happens. Uh, so with a higher order component, what you're doing is it's actually it's kind of a funny name because the 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 thing that's a higher order component is actually a function that returns a component. So it's neither the higher order component is neither a component nor is it higher order. Um, it is actually just a function that <laughs> that returns a component. But um, the the basic idea is um, you can like enhance an existing component or you can create a brand new component that's that's pre configured. Uh, so an example of something like this is is React Redux. That connect function is a higher order component. Um, even styled components are glamorous. Uh, the thing that you're creating or the thing you're using to create these styled components are, is actually a higher order component. Um, and so, yeah, the, but the, like where you're doing that, just look at where you're doing that in the file. That's going to be like no indentation right at the root of the file. And so that's happening at runtime. And you've created the component once, you can't change it at all. Like it's, it's been created. If you were to try to create it during a render method, you're going to have it unmount and remount over and over and over again because your instance is going to, or your component's entirely different. And so um, that is a pretty significant limitation of the pattern. But the reason that it came around in the first place was because we were moving away from mixins. Um, and there were a bunch of problems with mixins. Like, you know, um, React was able to warn you, like, hey, you, 
um, are duplicating um, or, or you have a, a name clash on state that you're trying to, like between these three mixins that you're using, you need to fix those. Um, but now with higher order components, React can't even warn you of that. Um, and so that's that actually, we took a step back a little bit when we moved to higher order components um, in that way. Um, now, now you have like prop names, uh, namespace clashes and stuff like that. Um, so that all of that said, higher order components themselves are not bad. Um, so like if you don't need to have any sort of dynamic composition of these components, like let's say I literally just need to um, provide a map state to props thing with my connect um, in, in Redux, like that, that's totally fine. Like there are render prop components uh, that are for Redux. And um, I, I honestly don't see a whole lot of benefit to using those over uh, just a regular React Redux with the Connect um, higher order component. Um, but uh, like it's, it's important to understand that um, like there, there are some limitations to higher order components. And, and, and on the implementer side of things, there are a whole bunch of things that you have to take into consideration when you're writing a higher order component, um, because uh, otherwise things can get kind of confusing for the people using it. Um, so yeah, like the other really awesome thing about render props though, is that it's totally trivial to implement a higher order component out of a render prop. So if you're wondering, should I create a uh, this component that's a higher order component or a render prop, then you're like, the answer is, make it a render prop and then um, make a higher order component that uses the render prop component. Um, and that's, I, I think that's another testament to the superiority of the, or at least the flexibility, uh, flexible superiority of the uh, render prop pattern over higher order components. Cause you can implement one and uh, you can implement a higher order component using a render prop, but you can't do it the other way around. Um, and so start with the render prop. If you feel like like there are common enough use cases that people want a higher order component, then you can expose one of those as well. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Yeah, I like that, Kent. That's a great summary. I was thinking about how uh, you think about the connect uh, higher order component and Redux, and that I've never really wished for that to be a render prop instead, though. And I think that's partially because of the nature of the way that's consumed, that it tends to be at the bottom of the file. I'm okay with that being um, statically declared right there. I don't really need any runtime dynamism on that area. So, uh, as usual, the, the hard part on these patterns is figuring out when to use each uh, and, and avoiding 
sort of uh, fanboyism on one. I know everybody, everybody when they learn a new pattern, want to find places to use that pattern, and that can lead to overuse. So uh, this conversation is helpful for me, just listening to how how you parse that as well. Um, because yeah, and and I I agree with you too that the higher order components pattern in particular, um, it, it I would say its benefit is um, I find it easier to read nested calls to higher order components than I do nested render props, but perhaps that's just uh, my personal preference. See, you roll your shoulders. I don't know, potato, potato. Everybody has their own preferences there, but I, I do think your point of implementing render props first is interesting because you know if you, if you rewind the clock and if if connect was created as a render prop first and then a wrap to create a higher order component API, would we would we be in a better spot? Would Redux be a, a better library if it offered those two options? I'm, I'm not so sure just because of the nature of the way connect is used. Um, can you, I, I can't think of a real benefit to it because to me, you, you tend to, you start to go down that road of uh, sort of the webpack problem where there's, there's multiple ways to get things done and that creates a certain amount of confusion for people. So I, I'm a big believer in uh, <clears throat> opinion being valuable and having a clear path for people so that uh, there, there's one less decision to be made and, and less questioning. So the, the person that designed it, you're hoping was professional enough and had enough foresight to say, hey, I think this is uh, the in the majority of cases the right approach. So I'm just going to send you down that path. Um, so I, I know that was a bit of a ramble, but I am curious, do you... Do you see any justification for Connect being offered, for example, as a render prop? Um, speaking of rambling, I'm like the master of rambling. <laughs> but uh, no, that's, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think that, uh, like, honestly, if th there are already um, li several libraries um, that implement uh, like React Redux like thing using render props. In fact, in my advanced React component patterns course on Egghead and in the workshops I'm going to be doing in the next uh, month or two, um, I'm going to be um, like implementing a, a thing that I call Rendux, which is a Redux as a render prop. Um, just to kind of teach the the pattern, not to suggest that it's a necessarily a good idea or something you should use. Um, You've got to start printing T-shirts, man. I mean, wow. <laughs> use my new library, Rendux. Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I thought the name was actually kind of clever, but <laughs> anyway. No, uh, I like it. Yeah. So there, there are some things that just make more sense as a higher order component. Um, like one, one situation I, I could think like, maybe I want to... Um, have some sort of dynamic behavior for my map state to props, but it already is dynamic because it's a function um, and it, and it's called on every every render. So um, they they've exposed the like they um, they've made it dynamic um, through the API of the higher order component. They've they've made the part that you would actually care about dynamic by um, providing a function. And so if you are making a higher order component um, and there's like some use case where like oh yeah dynamic uh, composability here would be really nice, then maybe just expose a function that you call uh, to make that happen. That that actually is something we, we do in Glamorous and something that happens in styled components. If you have some styles that depend on some props or something, then you just add a function and, and that function's called to, to return the styles that need to apply. So um, 
I, I would definitely like if you're only going to do one, then I would suggest doing a render prompt because then people can build their own higher order components out of that. Um, but uh, yeah, there are some some situations where a higher order component just makes more sense. Don't tell Michael Jackson I said that. <laughs> <laughs> so, are there other any other patterns in, that are general enough to speak about other than kind of those two that you want to go into? Yeah, definitely. There there are a bunch. So. Um, I mentioned earlier the prop collections and prop getters. Um, so that is um, uh, something that I kind of came out of uh, building Downshift, where we have this render prop and we need to apply an on-click um, to the um, like to this toggle button that can open and close the menu. Um, and so, how do we provide that? Well, the render prop that function is going to be called with an object that has um, what I call state and helpers. And um, the the state is, in downshift, there's actually only four um, things of state, which is kind of remarkable considering what it can do. But yeah, you just have your is open state, your input value, your selected item. And uh, now I forgot what that, that fourth one was. Um, something else. <laughs> so you can go look it up in the docs. Um, but uh, yeah, so just a couple items of state, but then a whole bunch of um, helper methods. So like um, a method for select item or select highlighted item, select item and index, um, and a, a bunch of other things that, or like clear selection, uh, stuff like that, um, open menu, toggle menu. Um, so um, all of these um, helper functions allow you to, uh, whatever you're rendering, uh, to control the state of the component. And this is a pretty general thing, like you're going to want to provide these, these helper methods that internally will do some logic and set some state. So then um, they, the user can control the state in kind of predictable ways. You could even actually like expose um, a wrapper around the set state method and they can just like set state however they want, um, which is actually kind of an interesting idea too. Um, so the, uh, um, the thing is though that like pretty much every input, especially in, in regards to accessibility, um, every input is going to need the same kind of um, like attributes for um, downshift to operate properly. Like when I key up, I'm going to want to do certain things. Um, I need to update the input value and, th and stuff like that. And so, um, or like I'm in the input, I hit the down arrow key, I want to pop open the menu. Um, so things, things like that, that are really common. And so that's going to be like an on key up, that's going to be, or on key down, or that's going to be uh, on click, that's going to be um, like a bunch of different props, ARIA uh, label props. And so you kind of collect, uh, you, you take the common use cases of your component, like this is going to have an input, it's going to have some items that it's going to render, um, and like the, the common props that people are going to be applying to uh, the different components that they render, and you put these into an object and you pass that as well. And so then they just spread those props across um, the input. So you say, here are the input props, just spread this across your input, it'll apply the on clicks and the on uh, key downs and everything that you need. Uh, for ARIA um, attributes and stuff. And then you can add all like whatever else that you want for your custom behavior. So if you want a custom on change on the input, then you just add your own on change. But just make sure that you apply these props to the input that you render. Um, and that, so that's prop collections. Um, and then prop getters is actually really similar. Um, so the, it actually, you might call it prop collection getters. So the, the problem with um, a prop collection is if you can envision this in your mind, you have an input and you've, you've spread the input props across that input that you rendered. 
And then after that, you add a, you like have custom behavior that you want to have happen on key down. And so you add an on key down prompt. Well, with the way that JavaScript works and, and the way that JSX transpilation happens, um, what you've just done is overridden the on key down that's built into downshift to make it work properly. And so uh, to overcome that behavior, you have to kind of compose these things together yourself. Um, and that can like be really annoying and confusing. And also, what if downshift switches from on key down to on key up or something like that? Now you've got to like make sure you uh, keep up to date with how things are working there. So what we do instead is instead of providing just an object of uh, props, we provide a function that returns an object of props. And that function is where you pass any additional props you want the um, to be applied to your input or to your menu or whatever. Um, and then um, that function is responsible for composing your custom behavior with a built-in behavior. And so if you provide a custom on key down, then um, downshift is going to first call your custom key down, and then it's going to call its built-in key down so that um, your custom behavior still works and downshift still works. Um, and there are mechanisms to um, for you to say, hey, downshift, in this case, like they hit the the left arrow key, I don't want anything to happen. Like, I don't want your built-in behavior for this. So you can prevent that um, from happening. And that's, um, yeah, um, that's basically the prop getters pattern. It's just a way for encapsulating within your library, uh, composing the um, the props that you need applied to certain elements that are being, re being rendered with the custom props that people want to apply to those elements. So other than looking at the the downshift source is there like a anywhere like a blog post or anything kind of explaining this for anyone listening and also for me actually <laughs> yeah sure so um yeah i create i did write a blog post about this a while back about the prop getters um because lots of people um were like well why don't you just provide me an object so i i what i just explained is kind of what i talked about in that blog post it's called, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it has a picture of a present at the top because it's like a gift you're giving to your users. Uh, it's like give, give your users flexibility with prop getters or something like that. Um, I can get you a link uh, later. But, uh, I just found it. Yeah. Oh, cool. So What's it called? How to give rendering control to users with prop getters. That's it. Yeah, so that, um, that's on my blog um, and hopefully people can find that. Yeah, it's interesting. We used a uh, similar pattern, and uh, I swear I'd read this blog post uh, sometime back, but uh, we didn't actually have a name for what we were doing. Our use case was uh, text inputs that end up having a fair amount of built-in logic for things like on blur uh, styling uh, when it's a required component or showing warnings when it's populated with data that doesn't match a regex, which declares certain masking rules. And uh, But we also needed to provide the extensibility of letting people declare effectively additional validation rules on top of that base behavior. So this sort of pattern uh, makes sense there too. And we found that really useful. I mean, I encourage uh, anybody that's that's working in React to, if you can get together with your UX team and come to an agreement on how you want to think about forms uh, and, and think about the basics of required field markers, about where you put the errors, about how you style things on, on warnings versus uh, required fields on how you want to handle masking and those sorts of things, then you can create these uh, text input primitives that help enforce a good portion of your UX standards around forms. And we found we can move much, much faster now because those are all just baked in, but we still needed to provide a uh, a way for people to enhance that. So yeah, this pattern is is useful. 
And uh, yeah, I'm glad there's a name for this because we just said, do that thing we did last Tuesday. So <laughs> yeah, actually um, names are pretty powerful things. And and so that's like, I normally don't really care what the name is most of the time. Um, as long as it's not terrible, I just want there to be a name that everybody uses. And that's why like isomorphic or universal, like, ah, that's so frustrating to me. We have two words for the same thing. And so like, yeah. Now, whenever you say it, you have to say both. <laughs> so, Unfortunately. Finding one name uh, for things, uh, it's really powerful. It's a, it's a good way to um, say, hey, listen, this is a pattern that, that we use at this company or, or that we use in the community. Um, and when you say that this component uses a render prop pattern, then like everybody knows um, like the basics, uh, maybe not the specific implementation, like maybe they're calling it uh, render item or maybe they're calling it children or something. Um, but you at least understand the basic idea behind the pattern. Exactly. I also, you know, if you, if you can automate it, great. And if you can't, then just document. This is the pattern we're using as well. Because as Corey pointed out, you know, do what we did last week becomes less helpful the longer you go on. And so, um, yeah, just make sure that it's, hey, look, we're using this pattern. This is how you implement it. This is how you pull it together. And then, yeah, make things work out that way. So another pattern that you wrote about, Kent, was the state reducer pattern. And this is going to be pretty familiar, I guess, for people that use Redux. But I've never actually used this outside of Redux, this pattern. So after reading your post, it was kind of interesting. So yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. And I'm kind of curious. This is kind of a question that like, I don't even know the answer to, and I guess I should. But um, you know, when you're using Redux and you set that initial... So when you're creating your reducer, I guess, in Redux, and you have that initial argument to your reducer, that's the state, and you set that as the initial state, and then you have uh, other arguments uh, like your actions. Um, so when the, the function gets called the initial time, the initial state is set by you know, either a default property or however you do that. But when the, when the reducer is called the second time, does Redux actually pass in the state to the function or is it actually in memory in that actual function? That's kind of a question that I've always wondered. I didn't, I didn't know if you would know the answer to that. Sure, yeah. So every every time Redux calls your, um, your reducer, it's going to pass you the existing state. Uh, it's just incidental that the first time it's called, um, the initial state is undefined. And so that that's why uh, your initial, like your custom initial state is, is gonna be the default. But yeah, every time it's going to call with with the state for that reducer, um, and the the state reducers pattern um, is something that I um, uh, thought of to solve a, a problem that somebody was having in Downshift, um, and it actually um, it incidentally is similar in some ways to Redux, but it's actually quite different. So I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but um, it turns out actually also that this this pattern is already exists like it already exists in React Reason, um, and it's been there for a long time. So that's pretty validating for me. Um, some other smart people have have thought of this, but the basic idea is uh, we we talked about earlier how um, you you create a library to abstract either the the view or the logic or both, um, and Downshift is is one that abstracts away logic and and leaves the view to the user, uh, and so the uh, uh the thing is that like if your uh, component is going to be useful to anybody it has to make some opinions like it, it has to like for downshift it has to make the opinion that when you start typing the the uh, menu opens up 
Um, it has to make opinions that when you tab out of the input, it's going to reset to its initial state. Um, but there, and, and it also, um, like has to make an opinion about when an item is selected. Um, so like I, with my use case, when I made downshift, I hit enter, um, on an item, like I, I uh, scroll down, I, or I click on an item and that's when an item is selected. But some people want the selection to happen as soon as the item is highlighted, or even like I can type anything that I want in, in this input. And that can also be a selected item. So as I'm typing that selection uh, takes place. And so these different use cases for logic uh, prove to be a little bit uh, more uh, complicated for a component like Downshift that has to make some of these opinions. And so we expose um, some uh, different mechanisms to control things. Uh, I, I don't know if we'll have time to talk about uh, control props, but that's another, another solution for this. But uh, state reducers is kind of between um, no control and control props. So uh, state reducers, it's a, a prop that is a function and it's called with the current state of the component and any changes that are about to happen. So um, it actually takes a fair amount of work to implement this within your component. But once it's in there, it's actually really powerful. So instead of in, inside of your component, instead of calling set state everywhere, you're going to call um, a custom wrapper that you have around set state. I call it internal set state in downshift. And um, you call that with any of the state that you want to set, as well as a type. Um, and, and in Downshift, we map all these types to uh, state change types um, that are, is exposed as a static property, so you can reference it. But they're just, it's just a string and it, uh, something that you can switch in case on. Um, some, um, yeah, just so that you know, um, like these changes are happening because the user you hit the down arrow key or these changes are happening because the user tabbed out of the input. Um, and so anytime you're going to set state, you, um, you specify what type of change this is, as well as the changes you're making. And so then the state reducer is called with the current state and the changes, which includes the type. Um, and then inside of your state reducer, you say, um, oh, because this is an arrow down uh, key press, I'm going to... Um, uh, accept all the changes that they want to accept that like um, downshift will update the highlighted index, for example. Oh, that was the fourth one that I, I forgot. So it's highlighted index is the other other state. So downshift will update the highlighted index to be the next item. Um, and, and actually, I think that's the only thing when you hit the down arrow key, if it's already open. Um, but I also want to change the state to be um, uh, to have a selected item. And I want that selected item to be the, the new high the item at the highlighted index. Um, and I also want the input value to update to be um, the value for that item. Um, and so in this way, you can make uh, downshift behave in an entirely different way than it was originally designed to, uh, to behave um, in an actually like very simple API. So you accept the state, you accept the changes, you determine what type of change this is. And if it's a type that you want to change the internal um, workings of downshift, then you return the changes plus any additional changes that you want. So um, like in code, this looks like, you know, return an object, you spread across the changes and then any other state changes that you want to have applied. Um, and uh, it's actually like, I, I'm super excited about this pattern um, because it's, um, I, I felt like we nailed the, uh, or we hit the nail on the head being able to abstract away the, the logic and leave the view to be totally free. Um, but, um, I kind of struggled with how do we also make the um, the logic piece flexible? 
And I feel like this is this is the solution um, using this state reducers pattern. Well, that and control prompts, which we can talk about later. All right, we've been uh, going for about an hour. Um, is there anything else that we should cover? I actually have two more that I can cover um, pretty quickly. Okay. So um, control props is um, actually a pretty pretty common pattern. Um, it's like if you've ever used a controlled input before, that's control props. So uh, to control the input, um, you set a value prop, and then you also want to have an on-change prop. And so the, the moment that you set the value prop on your input, um, you're saying, hey, React, I don't care what um, the, like, uh, the user types in or whatever. I don't care. The value should always be this. Whatever I give you is the value. That's the value of the input. So the user types in, and like nothing's going to change. Um, and so as a, as a part of that, you're going to have an on-change prop that is React suggestions to you of what um, it would change if it had control. So um, as the user is typing, you're going to get uh, the event, and that's going to have a target, and that's going to have a value, and then you can update that. And, and that's useful if you want to have this input only accept like uppercase letters, or you know there, there are tons of use cases uh, for uh, control prop on inputs. And so that's that's a control prop pattern. You can implement that yourself in your own components, and um, that's like the the ultimate control of downshift. If you just want to have absolute and total control of how downshift operates um, and like when something is updated like a good use case of, of this would be if you have um, two mechanisms for selecting an item in this autocomplete or in this drop down um, then you'd store that state in a, um, a common parent or in redux or something and then um, you can control the selected item for uh, for the drop down and then uh, downshift will say hey listen I think that you should set the selected item. You should change it because the user clicked on one. But I'm not going to tell you what to do. This is just my suggestion. And you can take that. You can update your Redux store. You can update uh, your state and your component. And then when that re-renders, then that'll uh, downshift will uh, reference your version of selected item instead of its own version of, of state. In fact, it doesn't even track it anymore once, uh, once you've started uh, doing that. So that's the... Uh, uh, control props pattern, pretty common, um, but definitely, definitely useful uh, for being able to, to control components. Uh, and then the other one, the last one I wanted to, to mention is uh, the provider pattern. Uh, this one's also really common, um, but like super useful and, and actually much more relevant um, now with some uh, upcoming changes in React. So the provider pattern is basically a mechanism by which you can um, inject some, um, some state in your React tree, and then any component anywhere in the tree below that can reach into, um, um, like, reach into the tree into this. Okay, I'm avoiding the word, but the word is context. So it reaches into context, and it pulls those values out. And so that's really a valuable uh, pattern for uh, avoiding the prop drilling problem, where you have like some state at the top of the tree, and then like ten layers down in the tree, you you want to access that state, um, like. To do that, normally you'd have to pass a prop through every single component that is in the tree, and then you start moving components around, and it's a total nightmare. Um, so instead, you can uh, put stuff into context and then pull them out of context anywhere within the tree. Um, and the reason I say that's really relevant today is because uh, React is about to get a new and official and totally not experimental anymore context API, um, which I think is like super duper exciting. Um, and so, yeah, I actually have a blog post on that called React's New Context API. Um, 
I explain what, what that's all about, but, um, the provider pattern is definitely one to learn, um, as well. So that's, that's patterns. There's actually still some more, uh, that I have in, in my egghead course and in the workshops that I'm giving, um, some really exciting stuff in, in React, but using these patterns can really help make your components more flexible, more uh, generically useful, and also um, more sensible. Uh, you, you have a lot fewer um, if statements in your components, so it's a lot easier to, to track what's going on uh, using some of these patterns. So def definitely recommend people give these a look. Very cool. Now you mentioned that you do have other patterns in your uh, workshop.me workshop and in your Egghead course, are there links to those where people can go and say, hey, you know what, I'm willing to put some money down to, to learn this or, you know, some of the Egghead courses are free. I don't know if that one is. Yeah. So I do have a free beginning, uh, like beginner's guide to React uh, course. And, and it does, no, it doesn't show any of these patterns. Um, but, uh, and, and that's on Egghead. But for the advanced course, that is um, a subscription only. Um, and like all the content is actually available on my GitHub. So you can go check that out if you want. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I have, a like a list of all of the places you can get this content on my website, just kentcdodds.com slash workshops. And, uh, and there are links to the various uh, places that I'll be giving these workshops or, or where it's available online. All righty. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks for you, the listeners of Ruby rogues. Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Corey, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got a pick. Uh, I've been enjoying a series that Elijah Manor started up recently. He's called Mannerisms, which uh, is covering <laughs> different facets of... Yeah, oh, you got to give him credit. It's a good name. Uh, but he's covering different facets of React in these short little five to seven minute videos on YouTube. So I'll share a link to his uh, latest one in the show notes, but they're well worth watching. He, he does a wonderful job. So that's my pick today. All right, Kent, what are your picks? All right, I've got a couple. So my first one is this component that's totally not a joke. Um, it's called React Component Component by Ryan Florence. And it's a React component that uh, it, if you have this in your, um, in your application, then you will never need um, to use a class component ever. Uh, you can make all of your components just like, um, it, it, like and it supports components in mount, component... Um, you know, a constructor, like initial state, all of that stuff, um, just using this very declarative uh, component. I probably wouldn't recommend just using this everywhere, but it is just a really interesting idea. Um, so yeah, React Component Component um, by Ryan Florence. Um, and then, oh, there was this awesome Winamp 2.js by Jordan Eldridge um, that I, I can uh, send to you. It's, it's um, like, if you remember Winamp from the old days, 
uh, that like played music on your mm-hmm. old Windows machines. Um, this is re-implemented in JavaScript with a bunch of skins and everything um, in the browser. You can actually play music with it. It's really, really cool. Uh, cool project. So, um, and then I, shoot, I did have another one. Hold on. Um, I guess my newsletter, follow me, uh, subscribe to my newsletter. It's kcd.im slash news. Um, and I uh, put in like things not to miss in those as well. So give that a look. Nice. So uh, I have a couple of picks myself. Uh, one of them, um, and this comes out of the stuff that Kent uh, kind of threw over the fence to us to go look at to prepare. Kent's actually got a really nice blog. So go check out blog.kentcdods.com. Um, great stuff there. I, I was like, I, I read the articles he told us to re- read and then I was like, oh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff here. So Thanks. anyway, yeah, go check that out. Um, another pick that I have that's definitely not technical. Um, it's what I got my wife for her birthday. Uh, we're really big into board games. And um, so I got her this game for her birthday. If you're into Harry Potter, you'll re- really enjoy it. But it's a fun game. Um, I, I think part of the fun is that we recognize some of the stuff from Harry Potter. But anyway, it's Hogwarts Battles. And what it is, is if you've played any of like the uh, deck building games like Splendor or um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that I've played. But uh, anyway, so you build up your deck and then you play out of your deck. Um, Splendor, you play against other people and Hogwarts Battles, you play collaborative, collaboratively with other people. And so uh, that's, that's pretty fun. Um, they pop up villains that have different effects, essentially. And you, you know, you have to do enough damage to them to, to get rid of them before they take over the, the locations that you're defending. So anyway, lots and lots of fun. Um, we, we actually went down to the St. George Parade of Homes, which is in St. George, Utah. And, uh, we, we would go walk through the houses, the brand new houses that they built with all the nice features in them for about six hours. And then we'd go back to the, the condo we were staying at and we'd play this game until like midnight every night. So we, we definitely enjoyed it. it. It was a lot of fun. So if you're looking for a fun game like that, uh, pretty approachable, I think, for kids that are 10-ish or older. So if you have kids and you're looking for something you can play with them that happens in a universe that they're familiar with, um, really, really great stuff. So I'm going to pick that. And then um, I've just been having a lot of fun writing code. And I know that most of us are thinking, well, I write code at work, blah, blah, blah. Well, um, since I spend most of my time doing podcast production stuff, writing code to make the podcast production stuff has been a ton of fun. And so I'm just going to recommend to people, um, if you don't take time to just write leisure code, like write code that you don't have to write, go do it. It's, it's a lot, a lot of fun. And yeah, those are my picks. I also just want to shout out that if you uh, are interested in React Dev Summit and you get the paid ticket, which gets you the recordings and, you know, the other bonuses, um, if you use the code Kent C. Dodds, then you will get a 10% discount. So neat. Yeah. And Kent gets a cut of that money too. So if you want to send some money to Kent, it's a good way to go. Yay. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're doing that for all the speakers. So if there's another speaker, you know, you see them tweeting about it on Twitter, you know, definitely check that out as well. We currently have like 13 or 14 speakers trying to line up another, you know, 10 or so. So we'll see how that goes, but uh, should be good stuff. So Anyway, check that out. That's at the end of the end of March. Um, so like the week after this comes out. Hey, Chuck, can I pick one more thing? Yeah. 
So last night's talk, uh, well, at uh, JSConf Iceland um, that Dan gave was amazing. And there's a blog post, uh, the, the uh, React team posted a blog post that kind of gives a short summary and, and a link to, or it has a, the video, the recording. And so I'll get you a link to that. Um, but uh, it was just so cool. My uh, suspense, this new feature that's coming in React is so awesome. So anyway, look, look for that. You're going to have you're going to write a lot less code um, for asynchronous stuff in React really soon. And it's just so, so cool. All right. Good stuff. Well, uh, thank you both for coming. Uh, Natter had to duck out early, which is understandable. But uh, yeah, thanks, Kent, also for writing libraries and sharing your knowledge. Well, thank you. All right. We'll wrap this one up, folks, and we'll be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.